Hello, welcome back to See You at the Podcast, the podcast for two unqualified football fans are just unqualified to talk about football. Oof, I almost tripped up on it that time. I almost tripped up on it that time, but it is good to be back. I'm in a bit of an excited mood, as you might imagine if you're a regular listener to the podcast, but someone who is always in an excited mood is my wonderful co-host, Sean. Shawnee, I'm sure our friends would corroborate that story. I think I think you'd be done for false advertising there, uh, but, but I'll fake it till we make it, I suppose, you know? <laughs> well, yeah man i mean let's get straight into it um the reason why i'm excited of course is arsenal three liverpool one um arsenal reinserting themselves into the title race was the line that people were saying i don't think they ever dropped out of it to be honest but huge win for arsenal at home um a dominant win at home despite their best efforts to cock it up <laughs> um but uh, I mean, you know that's Arsenal in it. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed this game thoroughly. I'm excited to hear what you have to think on it, um, or what you have to say on it, rather. And yeah, I mean, because I'll probably go on a bit of a rant as per usual. Yeah, well, like, look, it was a clear, clear daylight between them and, and Liverpool in terms of scoreline and in terms of performance. I think, you know, it's. In in some ways, I don't think Arsenal scored a clear goal, like a clean goal. Let's say in this game, like the Havertz on the first goal, kind of it just landed at Saka's feet for the open net. You had obviously that Liverpool's own cock up for Arsenal's second, and then like Allison really shouldn't have got beaten out of the near post by uh, Trossard for the third. But it doesn't really matter. Um, I think this is kind of, I think this is the flip side of that performance in the FA Cup in terms of Arsenal. Were, by far, probably by far and away the better team in both games except this time around they just saw it through and they got the goals as a result um, it's interesting I do think Arsenal were kind of away from the title challenge in some senses like you know given the, the points deficit they had but they it kind of feels like spiritually away right like well, almost the, as if there's some they kind of had those two losses against um, or sorry those, those two bad results against both West Ham and Forest. And it sort of felt a bit funky for a minute. Well, yeah. And like, I think though, the thing is, I don't know if the title race was relatively to defined up until this point in some senses. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you look at the top three now, they're all within three points of each other, two two or three points, but, you know, depending on which two teams you take. And obviously City have the game in hand, which would put them top with three points, if I'm right with my maths. But the now I think it's clear that we're looking at three teams because in a weird way, given Liverpool and Klopp leaving, you're kind of like, okay, well, they're, they are emotionally in a title race, um, no matter what. And, like, their form going into this game was, like, four wins and a draw or even five wins. So, big, big turn up for the books that Arsenal turned over this result. And I think, Owen, as we discussed at the time, Arsenal, you know, went into the quote-unquote winter break with, you know, some bad results behind them. And they have come back. They slapped Nottingham Forest, more or less. I think it was 2-1, but they were completely dominant. And stepping into this game then, you know... And you have to remember as well, they've got themselves knocked out of all of the Cups except the Champions League. So it's a kind of nice two major trophies, the two priorities on the on the chopping block for them to focus on. But yeah, sorry, within the game itself, I think Arsenal were just far superior. Um, 
I, there was a lot of parallels. I think even had they set up it for, against Liverpool the first time, the sort of four tri- triple two sort of thing with Havertz and Odegaard really pushing high through the middle and putting the pressure on the centre backs. And I'd I, I'd not want to get get too high and, and start calling out individual players on the Arsenal squad for for flowers as Ian Wright would call it, but. Given, I think, what what else we're going to talk about in this podcast, there's something, it depends how you look at it, nice or deeply infuriating that £105 million Declan Rice has just slotted into an Arsenal side and looks every bit worth every penny is just the epitome of class. Like, you might say he wouldn't even that stand out. But every time I watch him in this team, he kind of, he looks like a leader. He looks like he belongs. He's he's one of the best players in the team for me. Um. Like obviously you see his absence in that Spurs draw they suffered in the first half of the season as well. But for me, you know, in games like this, whenever I watch him play for a full match with Arsenal, you're kinda of like, Oh god, okay, yeah, he is very good. Which, you know, makes it hurt all the more that he abandoned us for the English na- English national team. So yeah, look, look, it's all positive all around and Arsenal look this is a a big motivating and a big momentum builder, you know, as the narratives go. So I'm sure well, before we start recording listener almost definitely buzzing so i'm sure that energy will, will carry through to the for the rest of this record yeah no 100 100 um <clears throat> if i'm gonna clear my throat before i start yeah like absolutely buzzing i think top to bottom arsenal were excellent i don't think i could single out a player that was poor or that was below standard um i think Arteta plays against Liverpool similarly every time, um, in certain senses. If I if I can put it that way, I think you know the switch from Zinchenko to Kivior was sort of the similar thing that he likes to do with uh, Tommy Yasu as well. Like he loves Tommy Yasu against Saka, and I know for a fact that had Tommy Yasu been fit when we played Liverpool in the league last time. Um, at Anfield, he would have he would have made sure that that was a possibility. Um, Sorry, did you mean Tomiyasu against Salah? Salah, did I say Saka? Yeah, you said Saka. And Sorry, I was like... Saka on the brain, man. Saka on the brain. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's interesting how he likes those sort of bigger fullbacks up against Liverpool. Once we'd sort of um, unlocked how we were going to play, um, yeah, I mean. No Gabriel Jesus, which which you know frightens you on the surface, but then, I mean Kai Havertz. Other than you know, punting the ball straight at Allison, which did lead to the first goal, but other than that, was excellent in this game. Um, I think. Go for it. You have something. To Sorry, in? I just want to interject there on Havertz because there's kind of a question that's been bubbling in my head about him. Like, where do you see him in this team? Because. He's clearly quite a good player, and he's had, he had a great performance here. I know he didn't score, but like he seems crucial. Like you can see what Arteta envisaged, but I think he just gets a lot of stick for not like even in this game he had two chances he probably should have put away the first. Obviously, going fall into Saka for the first goal. Yeah, I mean, when you say where do I envisage him, that is sort of a larger question as to how Arsenal play, right? Um. It sort of is in that center left pocket uh, is sort of where he tends to operate. But you have to remember that Mikel Arteta, much like Pep Guardiola, 
uh, and I hate making that comparison, but very much views his 11 as having zones. So it's not necessarily a formation thing. Like he got asked about his formation and he's like, well, I played, I can't remember the number, but he's like, I played 57 formations in that game. So tell me which one. Um, so I think he views Kai Havertz as somebody, like I, uh, not speaking positionally, but someone who operates mainly through the center or slightly center left, very far forward, who is maybe not leading the press, but because Odegaard usually leads the press or Jesus, someone who is maybe second or third guy, third man to press. But more importantly, in defense is somebody who actually, when Arsenal don't have the ball, is actually playing on the shoulder of the defenders and is up there in between them. Um, so you can see that aerial sort of threat that he carries um, and not just threat, aerial nuisance. He's he's a pain, as Kanate found out. I thought he gave Kanate a terrible time in this game. I know that you can argue whether the red card was, was a red card or wasn't, or whether the yellow card was um, a bit soft, which in truth it probably was. Um, but ah, he well, gave Kanate was being incredibly naive in both instances. Yeah, yeah, no, he was silly. I'm saying. Um, it was silly, but what I'm saying more so to the point, regardless, don't let the decision overshadow the fact, basically, is what I'm trying to say, is that Havertz gave him a horrible time. He had a horrible evening up against Kai Havertz, and that set, like, you know, for people who, who aren't looking, watching Kai Havertz closely enough, that would be like, what are you talking about? But Kai Havertz gave him an awful time, and, and we'll do that to defenders. Um, yeah, I think Trent Alexander-Arnold really... Like I'm trying to think, is there? I'd say if you were to ask him, like who are like who are the players he hates playing against the most? I'd say Gabriel Martinelli's well in there in his top three. Like he seems to just really enjoy playing against Trent Alexander-Arnold. Um, and I'm, this isn't me focusing on Trent's def- apparent defensive frailties that people always seem to wheel out whenever he has a somewhat quiet or bad game, but it's just. Um, styles make matchups, and I think the same way um, Arteta loves Tommy Asu versus Salah, he likes Martinelli versus Alexander Arnold too. Um, yeah, I mean, you have to give a shout out to the man of the match, Jorginho, as well. Um, yeah, there's a lot of talk now. It's so funny. Uh, football is such a fickle, funny little game. Jorginho doesn't start a game since I think November, and um, immediately after this game. There's stories like, you know, Arsenal have a one-year option on Jorginho's contract. Should they trigger it now? And it's like, he's had one good game. <laughs> let's uh, let's relax the cacks. But like... Um, As someone who eviscerated him after the North London Derby. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, no, I believe... I didn't say eviscerate. I didn't eviscerate him. I believe what I said was, um, how do you... Um, how do you plan for your most experienced player falling on his arse? I believe were my exact words. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, someone call that evisceration, but, yeah, but continue. But, continue. <laughs> and I, hold on, and pause. I didn't say that he should get a new contract. I'm more so laughing at the fact that there's media stories talking about it. Um, but he had a great game. He had a really, really good game. Um, of course, alongside Declan Rice. Um, yeah, I mean... You know, you also have to call out the faults as well where they are. Uh, that goal that we gave away, Jesus, talk about shooting yourself in the foot. I remember right before half time, I'm thinking, 
this is it. <laughs> like they're gonna come out in the second half and they're gonna blow us away. Um, thankfully they didn't. But well, uh, on my end of course. But I do want to just um, because I've been kind of gushing about Arsenal a little bit. I do want to talk about Liverpool because I think there's there. There is a there would or is maybe a tendency to say, oh, Liverpool were bad. That's why Arsenal were good. And I think that's a very simple way of. I've heard a lot of people say that. And I'm like, ah, I don't know about that. Like, given the chance, Liverpool would have killed Arsenal if they if they got it. I thought the main thing is, if I can talk about Liverpool in a holistic sense, and I think this is something that we touched on earlier in the year. I think they're consistency their fitness and their relentlessness that sort of you know the heavy metal football sort of style that Klopp seems to have leaned back on this this feel this team to me feels very Dortmund-esque um this this Liverpool team it is more that old Klopp style of heavy metal football um rather than the glory days of the Firmino, Salah, Mane front three um with with his uh the midfield pivoting behind and stuff like that. Um this feels to me more like that sort of direct press go 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 heavy metal football. And I think that has paid dividends and made up for a lack of quality in that 11 compared to maybe the other two teams that are in the title race um and ultimately that's what you'd like you know it's all about the 11 it's not about the individuals so i'm not trying to take anything away from liverpool but i think you see in in a matchup like this where those holes in quality are of course they are missing salah so you do have to call that out but when you look at it i mean that midfield of jones McAllister, and gravenberg it wasn't there against our like compared to Arsenal's midfield, it wasn't there. Like when you have to come up against Odegaard, Rice, and Jorginho, like it was chalk and cheese, to be honest. Um, and I think that's really what let Liverpool down. Amongst other things, I mean they were they weren't very potent in attack, but I mean that's for me, that's the key point. And I just wonder, like, and it's like as the season goes on, um, as more teams start to start to sort of ramp up, will Liverpool feel that squeeze in midfield? Of course, they were missing Endo as well, but yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. How do you what do you what do you think about Liverpool? Like in terms of that midfield, do you think that midfield can continue to sit in this system and continue to pay dividends, or do you think the sort of weaknesses were highlighted by obviously they're not going to come up against an Arsenal every single week. But do you think that's where the the push point is? Yeah, like just just on a broader sense, I think we talked earlier in the season about how Liverpool didn't really feel like, you know, based on performance, were leading the league when they were, um, which they still are as far as I know. But um, the the thing about it is, it, it does come down to that. Like you know, we have to think back to the start of the season, and you had that Chelsea Liverpool game, and. All the talk was, was Caicedo going to go to a team? And, and the whole game was framed in that battle of who needs a number six more. And ultimately it came in a draw. But they signed Endo then and Endo's not played that much. And 
Alexis McAllister is this sort of deep line midfielder. So then Liverpool have experimented with Trent in midfield and this and that. Now, I wonder in this game in particular, did they miss Zosbali's kind of presence in terms of ball control, passing forward and, and his ability to unlock defences and also, you know, hit a belter every now and then, um, which sometimes a game calls for, I would say, to unsettle a defence. Um, because I was looking through the stats there and the fact of the matter is Liverpool had one shot on target. Um, and it wasn't the goal. So, you know, they really didn't create much, even despite having the majority possession. So, like, I think the midfield works, but it's also missing that. It works sometimes, and it will probably get them by. But it seems to me Liverpool's kind of style is getting them by in terms of the energy of it all. And, like, Curtis Jones is quite an energy. You know, you can see Gravenberg... Curtis Jones running up and down the pitch and McAllister to a certain extent as well and even Zosbali and stuff so so there's a lot of energy and emphasis there I wonder will we see Trent playing midfield given Connor Bradley's recent form and when he's back in the side probably not but for me they're kind of surviving on vibes and energy and heavy metal football all, all of the kind of stereotypes we throw at Klopp's Liverpool sides and especially this one on as I think you, you perfectly summarised but for me there's just more of a, like, there's something about them nearly overperforming their their base model or their base statistics. I, I don't even know if that's true, but, like, the framework that they have set up, for me, like, with City and Arsenal, you can really see, okay, they've set up very specifically in this style of play. It's going to probably win the most games. Every now and then they're going to have an off day and they might lose. Liverpool, I don't think, are subject to that as much because they'll just, like ride it out, outscore a team, come back with a lot of energy and the like. You know, they have only lost two games this season. We can't write them off completely. But ultimately, the quality in 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 most areas even, and the consistency of their starting front three selection as well. Like Nunes is, off, you know, in the team, on the bench, not starting, not playing. Like he's just kind of all over the shop. And it's a bit, a bit like his play style, chaotic in terms of what's happening with him. Is he your focal point? Is he playing on the left wing? So for me... Like it's kind of, like Liverpool is kind of like this controlled chaos in in an overall sense, and they don't have that release pressure valve. Sorry, in midfield, like they would have done with Fabinho, like Arsenal have at Rice, like City have at Rodri. So, I do wonder: is this going to all fall apart, or is it just kind of vibes its way till the end? Maybe that does them somewhat of a disservice, but for me, in a broad sense, they are kind of this energizer bunny of a team, as opposed to a Surgeon, more surgical approach that Arsenal and City uh, would employ. Yeah, like I, I'm not writing them off by any means. I think they will be there till the end. I just think, like you mentioned, their approach is quite different. Um, that being said, this game in particular was the most XG that they've faced. I think the stat, the statistic was since 2010-11, which, by consequence, is the most they faced ever under Klopp. Um, so I think that's interesting to me, um, because this wasn't just one of those days, you know what I mean? I think they came up against a team that was really going out to go and grab these three points against them. Um, and I think there was just a hole punctured in Liverpool. You look at Kai Havertz striding through for that first goal, albeit whacked it straight against Alisson's chest. Um, and yeah, much as I talked about uh, Jorginho against Spurs back in the day, like, you know, 
how do you also plan for your most experienced defender and the best goalkeeper in the league clattering into each other to leave Gabriel Martinelli with an open goal? You know what I mean? But, the, but these things happen, though, don't they? That's like, what I'm saying. Even, yeah. even you chalk up the Raya thing, or the Raya Gabriel snafu. Like, I, I saw, just to say, oh, like, there's been some drawn the parallel. Well, oh, City won't be too worried. Looking at the state of the defending from these two teams, you know, the quality no. of the game. And it was like, I'm sorry, but if you watched, like, the Brentford game last night, I watched, you know, Ederson get him in, himself into yeah. borderline pickles several times. So like it's it's all it's all you kind of you know the way these teams play inevitably will have a rick every now and then but you know you take the net I, game. I almost think at times, and I, I'm pretty sure that the statistics back this up pretty well. Um, hence, why you remember high-profile mistakes in big games is sort of the higher the quality, the higher the risk factor, and the higher the concentration levels and all of that. I almost think that these type of mistakes, these type of mistakes and when you pile on pressure and you pile on these big games are symptomatic of high quality games and high quality teams. Um these kind of comical errors. You know, it's not it's not a it's not an error that happens every single day. Um although I am happy to see Arsenal get one back. Because <laughs> it feels like too many have gone gone one way. Um but yeah, ultimately, I, I guess to, to kind of close on this in general, um, extremely happy. I think the title race is right on. Um, probably not going to bother talking about City this week, at least. Um, well, oh, and so so who who's who's the front runner for you in this title chase? <laughs> for, like, to me, over the last decade or so, if Manchester City are there, it's Manchester City. It has to be, because they've shown previous. They've got Pep Guardiola. They've got the most expensive team in the league by far. Um, I just think that they've built this deep squad, even with letting some of their most talismanic, if I can say that, players go in the likes of Riyad Mahrez and Ilkay Gundogan. They still have this relentless conveyor belt of quality that just in, inserts itself into football matches the only hope I think the other two teams have is that even from watching that Brentford game they do have a lackadaisicalness about them that I don't think I've seen in quite a couple of years so that's the only thing that gives me any sort of hope but they do come extremely good usually following the first of March so we need to just watch this space but they do play Arsenal and Liverpool in a very short space of time, I believe in, I want to say, March, April. So both teams have a swing. Um, Arsenal and, and Liverpool both have a swing at their jaw. And that could be crucial. Um, and I have a feeling that both Arsenal and Liverpool may become that point, will be cheering, for, cheering the other on to sort of drag this thing and keep it a three-horse race. Um, that's my yeah. opinion on it, sort of. City have a pretty, like, I know it's City, but they play United on the 3rd of March, which, you know, despite United's quality, it's a derby. Um, then they play Liverpool, then they play Brighton away, and then they play Arsenal all week after week in March. Four yeah, I mean, Super pretty Sunday nasty. games. Yeah, so, like, th- there's a there's definitely a banana skin in there, at least once, potentially. Yeah. 
And if it isn't, I mean, they're probably going on to be champions again and they're worth their salt for it. You know what I mean? If they go and... It, they it, go it, and it literally own... As you said, the first game is third of March in that sequence. And, you know, as yeah. you just said, they usually come good March 1st. So uh, yeah. that could be that could be four wins on the trot, 12 mm. goals total, zero conceded or something. Uh, Who knows? On the flip side, I, I'm not sure where the... Because I know I know Arsenal playing at the Etihad. I don't know. Are Liverpool playing at the Etihad or is it at Anfield? It's at Anfield. Okay, so yeah, it's at Anfield. Um, like for me, as speaking from an Arsenal perspective, I feel like Arsenal have to go and beat them at the Etihad. You know what I mean? That's the that's the level we're talking about here. Like you know, you want to like to like to be the best, you got to beat the best, right? And no matter what external factors you can you can chalk it down to, at the end of the game, it's a game of football. You have to win it, and we'll see where the the land lies in a few weeks. But yeah, um, quick a quick one from you, um, just to get your opinion on it, because um, it's been seems to be everything that everyone talks about after this game. Over is over celebrating a thing? Do you reckon? Kind of. <sighs> I don't know. I I thought I did think it was a bit weird when Arsenal celebrate beating Wolves to 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 the extent they did, and like Newcastle taking pictures with in the dressing room after just a random win every now and then seems a bit much. But in this instance, like big game, it, it means a lot. You you beat at the the league leaders. You dragged yourself in. Like we don't criticize Luton if they were to go and do it. Do you know what I mean? So like yeah. why why can we criticize Arsenal? So for me in this instance, it's all, it's a bunch of do about nothing. You know, yeah, very I much think, it, I think uh, it's weird. Um, Antonio said on Monday Night Football, Constable Carragher of the Celebration Police. So <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I like that. But uh, um, look, let, let them enjoy the win. It's a big win. Yeah, and also like you know, just on football in general. Like you know, we're sitting here talking about it right now. Like we love football. <laughs> like, are we not supposed to enjoy it? <laughs> you know what I mean? We're supposed to go. Oh, thanks for the win. See you later. Um. Yeah, no, it just it just frustrates me in general, and it's also like you know I do have my uh, my sort of riot shield in front of Mikel Arteta in a sense of you know Jurgen Klopp, ha- like just to talk about the manager on the other on the in the other dugout has literally sprinted onto the pitch at points. Like, um, I think it's I think it's a ridiculous reach um, to to call it over celebrating. Um, you know, there was a time where. Liverpool had their first eleven throwing their hands up about a draw against West Brom. Um, you know what I mean? And that's fine as well. You do you. But ultimately at the end of the day, I just think the the idea of over celebrating is ridiculous. Would I get pissed off if I was on the opposition side? Yeah. Sure. But that's the point. That's the fun of it all. So um yeah, I, I just thought that was ridiculous. Um, but I do like that Martin Odegaard photograph of him with the camera. It is nice. Um, but moving on, anyway. Does that speaking... not defeat the purpose of what he was yeah. trying to do there? I know, yeah. It's uh, but uh, it's yeah, it's a cool photograph. I mean, it is it is a widely memed photograph already. Like you can already see the like sort of the memes that are going to come with it. It'll be like Odegaard with the camera and like Man City three Arsenal nil. And it's like hey, like he was taking a picture of the scoreboard. La 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 la. It's all banter. It's all fun. But tell you where there's not a lot of fun and not a lot of banter. Speaking of Jorginho and Havertz having a great game against the league leaders, Chelsea Football Club. Holy. 
like we were kind of saying, it's February now. Um, what in the blazes is going on over there? Like this, they're nowhere near it. Like not even close. Well, like, yeah, like look, as a as a United fan, like there there is an element of of wonder I've I've held all season as to why Chelsea seemingly seem to get a free ride when it comes to the drama, the you know, like everything that's happening at Man United this year. There's like I believe there was, you know, there was like on one one outlet I think I saw three different podcasts about the Marcus Rashford situation. So like that that the, when that's going on and you see Chelsea flying under the radar kind of getting just kind of just like sliding and sliding not really doing much of anything getting a few wins here and there and then ultimately seeing that they're 11th and I think you know I think now all of the reaction is coming because they got beat at home by Wolves who've leapfrogged them in the table you know the the parallels and the contrast in terms of you know Pochettino's had a whole summer Potter joined mid-season uh, they've spent a billion quid on this squad, um, you know, obviously mitigated by selling the likes of Mountain Havertz, um, and yet, you know, and Pochettino's had a full summer, and then you, you know, you con- conversely, uh, O'Neill uh, of Wolves is like had three days, and he has them sitting pretty intent, outplaying Chelsea all over the pitch, and it's all the kind of. I- <laughs> I don't know. I, like, I'm, I'm, of course, it's a farce and it is funny, and it's kind of look at you, Mister Bowley, coming in trying to. It's it's a, it's to a do disgrace. The Americanism. It's a disgrace. Look, that's what it is. It's a disgrace. I, I have a few points I'll get to, but I think I feel like I need to unleash the beast here. Go on. But it's a disgrace. They're a disgrace. They're a disgrace to their to their badge. They're a disgrace to their fans. Honestly, honestly, where is it? I don't see it. Like, there is no pulse about Chelsea Football Club at all. I see no signs of life. And I'm not trying to be inflammatory or reactionary. We are over halfway through the season now. Like, we're getting there. We're a couple of weeks away from being in the championship rounds of the Premier League 23-24. And they are nowhere near it. Zero signs of life. A manager that was apparently you know, going to take them to the moon. But there's nothing. Like, I mean, and we talked about this earlier in the season, how essentially he has somewhat of a free hit. I'm not blaming this all on the manager, by the way. But this year, as long as they show a little bit of something, you know what I mean, have a few big wins. Um, I think all this season has really shown so far is that Thiago Silva is pretty class, but he's getting on. And that Cole Palmer was a good recruitment choice. Like, I don't see anything else that's super positive about that team. I mean, they might win a bloody trophy, which is typical football. (laughs) You know what I mean? But at the end of the day, I just don't see where this is going. And maybe I'm blind. I'm sure there's smarter people at Chelsea than me. Of course there is. That's not hard. But, like, I, if I'm a Chelsea fan... I'm thinking, how long is this going to be? We spent how much money? We've got this supposed world beater of a manager in. Are we going to be near the Champions League places next year? To me, and from my view, not a chance. The year after, maybe. But will Pochettino be afforded that luxury? 
will they have overspent to the point that they can bring in like even more players? Like if you're a Victor Osman and you're looking at this team and you're thinking, where am I going to go next? Like I know money talks, but let's just let's just take that out of the equation for a quick second because lots of money will talk at him from lots of different clubs. Um, you know, I I don't I I think Chelsea would probably have to make a ridiculous offer to outplay the other clubs that may be in for Osman or may not. So, do you like? It, it would seem to me like a brave choice for a player of his quality. I'm not just talking about Victor Osman. I'm just using him as my example. So, I don't really see this as an attractive project even for a player like. If you look at, you know, the the two examples that are, I think the one has pro- has paid dividends and then some, like Jurgen Klopp's project at Liverpool, the amount of players that wanted to come and play for him when he was signing players because of the project and there were signs of life and there was a, a place for you in that team if you were to come. He had a plan for you, and there, you know what I mean. And then a more modern example, but of course without the Premier League and Champions League successes, is Arsenal. You look at the players that come to Arsenal, and it seems like there's a plan, like even to the point where Arsenal were able to outmuscle Manchester City for Declan Rice. Um, players are being more conscious now in their careers in the way that they operate. And I'm just giving those those examples. But I just think if you're a top, top player, a top, top player, and you're looking at the Premier League and you want to make the switch and you've got Chelsea or two other clubs, do you go to Chelsea? Like, I'd go to United over Chelsea. Do you know what I mean? At, at the minute. And everyone seems to be out slandering Man United. But I'd way sooner go to Manchester United than Chelsea. Well, like, look, you know, you talk about plans and this and that. Like, obviously, United's recruitment's kind of all over the shop, but there, you can kind of see what the plan was to a certain extent. You know, you buy IX players. So, like, that's a plan. <laughs> and, but, no, but more seriously... Well, you know where Brian Brobby's going, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, God, anyway, look, we'll see We'll see what summer brings. Please, no. But, um, yeah, like... See, the thing, like, it, it is kind of crystallized by losing to so, to a manager who had three days before a season started and is outperforming them with you know they made you know, like Chelsea you know I don't even know what their figure in the net spend in terms of the summer was but like I you know what was it Wolves sold 180 million quids worth of players and or 100 odd million worth of players and bought 30 million you know they, they had a net profit of over 100 million between outs, you know, losing Neves and 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 Nunes and a few others, and then only signing, you know, one or two guys from Portugal. So like, and like that's why Lopetegui walked because Wolves are so worried about PSR, which you know is now becoming the parlance as opposed to FFP, which is which is interesting. But um, I like how can you know like. Ten Hag, so I think I think you have to draw the parallels to, to the United situation as we were talking about on as you're even saying even you'd sooner go to United like Ten Hag had goodwill after a good first season like think what he achieved with his first season of a relative misfit team in some senses and put some shape on it yada yada bought it spent X million like what's Pochettino doing because it's now February there's teams who've had their managers for less time that are outperforming them there's 
Like, wh what is the plan on the pitch? The fact of the matter is, like, why, why, why did they select, for example, J Reese James and James Chilwell as their captain and vice captain? Two lads who were in their mid to, mid to early twenties, both of whom have only started, you know, who are would be Chelsea's best eleven, but they've only ever started seven games since the start of last season together. You know, Reese James is always injured. How is that your club captain? Who like you need a leader on the pitch? Then also the backup to that is another guy who's always injured. Like what? What's the thinking behind that? And what does that say about like Raheem Sterling, for example, and his cap capability as a leader? A marquee signing. He's in the prime of his career, and he's not the captain of your team. You know, Thiago Silva. Understandably, you probably want to phase him out, so you don't want to give him all that responsibility, and or whatever. And it seems, given I think Thiago Silva's wife is tweeting left, right, and center, there seems to be issues between Pochettino and Thiago Silva off the pitch. And then, as, on top of that, you have a player like Conor Gallagher, who's Conor Gallagher, sorry, who's playing week in, week out for the team but who is also very much up for sale. And like, is a, that's a very weird situation that you're so reliant on a guy you're clearly trying to get rid of because he won't sign the contract Chelsea want him to sign because he's probably looking around going, well, I'm in the team every week and you're not offering me the same money as Enzo Fernandez. And that's another issue here, like 200 million quids worth of your, of your midfield. And you're like, what I saw in the game so clearly was the amount of times you saw Neto, Ait Nori, Cunha, Oh, they scored off loads of sort of late runs into the box. Where was in all of the? If you watch back the highlights, in the you'll see Enzo Fernandez stopped running and stopped tracking a man. Caicedo's nowhere to be seen. Even Gallagher's not Gallagher's not even anywhere to be seen. So like, how is that happening? And then I read a bit of a you know an article and saying that Pochettino's not focusing on the tactics. Like what? So what the bloody hell is he doing? So I do think. To a certain extent, Pochettino has been handed like an island of misfit toys. You know, it's a, a bunch of hot young kids who are going to be inconsistent. Like you look at any youth player, you know, Garnacho's not going to score you 20 goals a season yet. You know, there's loads of them who are all over the shop. So for me, he's been dealt a bit of a tough hand, but it is also his fault as well. And I don't know what the plan is here but who to succeed him but it does seem like he's not going to see next year yeah i mean he's got what i would deem to be probably one of the most difficult periods like coming up now um so like at the minute i believe they've got the efl cup final coming up soon but they've also got like back to like you know they've got an fa cup game against aston villa then they've got then they're away to Crystal Palace, then they're away to Man City, then they've got the EFL Cup, then they're away to Brentford, then they're at home to Newcastle, then they're away to Arsenal, then they're at home to Burnley, so maybe a little bit of respite, then they're at home to Man United. You know what I mean? It's just like it seems like a bit of a minefield that Maurizio Pochettino could be in. And to be quite honest, um, when I look at this squad and I look at the recruitment, I don't know if I really trust it. Um, you know, you've got Robert Sanchez, who is he of the required quality to be in goal for Chelsea Football Club? Not sure. I know he's out at the minute and Pe Petrovic is in. But looking even further than that, you know, they've brought in players the likes of, you know, Mark Kukurea, who had like a decent little stint at Brighton but you know and I know he was at uh, 
Barca and and whatnot, and was coveted by City. But short stint, relatively unproven, not looking the business in a Chelsea shirt at least. Um, you've got a guy like Moises Caicedo who, again, was being wrestled for by teams like Liverpool and Arsenal as well. But ultimately, at the end of the day, short good stint in the league and then signed by Chelsea. Romeo Lavia, short good stint in the league with Southampton, then signed by Chelsea. Enzo Fernandez, good stint in an international tournament, then signed by Chelsea. Um, you know, there's and there's a few more. I mean, Mikhailo Mudrik, for example, who... Like, you know, big money signing. Playing in a league that isn't necessarily the highest quality. Again, coveted by big teams. But it's sort of like, I feel like you can have one or two of those. It feels like Chelsea have like 8 to 12 of those. Players who, of course, have potential. But can you really raise that many players to the level required that Chelsea would expect? in that period of time, to have them be challenging for titles, for me, impossible. I think they've come in with an American mindset into a sport that absolutely doesn't allow for it, and I think they're going to be punished greatly for many, many years. Yeah, like I think it is kind of just buying all the shiny young things, throwing it thrown it at the wall and seeing what sticks. Like it is... Um, like it's severe, do you know, like a severe over, it's a, it's a big bet, I suppose, in a lot of senses. And like, you can't, I, I think what you said there on the kick can afford like one or two of those as opposed to eight. Like, you know, you think in, in some senses, like a lot of these players are getting the stick, but t- take Declan Rice as an example. Like if he'd gone to Chelsea instead and Caicedo had gone to Arsenal, I would wonder would the positions be the same because you, you're going into a settled system with, clear direction from the club and from the managers you know as to where you're going whereas you throw Enzo in yeah, then you get Caicedo and you're like okay it's a new manager Graham Potter kind of was trying different things week in week out that didn't work then you go go to Pochettino and like realistically you would expect he'd have some sort of plan but it seems like he has no clue what he's trying to do because like I honestly can't tell you how Chelsea are trying to play do you know what I mean like is it a 3-4-3 sometimes is it you know they start the season with Chilwell as a left I think it's uh, Pochettino admitted himself as a left winger, which seems strange. Like Colwell, nominally a centre back, has been playing left back much of the year, and now he's out of the team, injury or suspended or whatever. So it's all a bit all over the shop, and like you do kind of have to feel like I don't want to harp on too much, but like Mudrick, like he's kind of a player primed to be getting a ribbon based on kind of how he carries himself. Like even the weird, um. Was it after the Newcastle game, you know, him posting that weird thing like it gets, you know, in support of Trippier, even though he didn't need it. But am I thinking that that's the right guy? But like, it's just, yeah, they needed a settled team before they started sprinkling in all these young, young players and bringing them up in a, you know, you need experience as well. You just do. Do you know what I mean? You can't, you can't have everyone be under the age of 25. And like, to be honest, if, if one of those guys is Sterling... You know, I, I did posit the question, should he have been captain? Like, I don't think he should have been anyway, so it's not surprised he didn't get it because he's never been that kind of leader and he's always been a garnish as opposed to a key player for any team. So, yeah, they don't really have the core to build off of right now. Um, and, like, when you've got a guy like Gallagher who's tries his heart out, I would say, in most games, like, he could be someone you could 
But then the fact of the matter is you're not really treating him with respect either. So uh, yeah, it's all a bit of a it's all a bit of a mess and something very sticky for Pochettino to uh, unpack. Yeah, like when you're talking about the top level of the game, tries and 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 get, makes an, a tangible, um, clear effort. Um, that's the minimum requirement, you know, for playing for Chelsea. That's what it should be. Um, and you know, we talk about again. I'm just going to draw the comparison with Arsenal, who are a team that are for mo- the most part under 25. Um, in many instances, but. The difference between a player like Declan Rice and Moises Caicedo is Declan Rice, for his age, has a freaky amount of Premier League appearances. Has more Premier League experience than most players will have in their lives when we look at the small sample size of 20 teams being in the Premier League and only 11 players being starters for each team. Like, and that's that for me is the difference. When I look at the players that Chelsea have brought in versus an Arsenal or even versus a Tottenham if you want to look at Tottenham as a fresh project right you look at some of the players that they've brought in they haven't relied solely on going with big money signings that are supposed to fill this gap and competing shoulder to shoulder with other teams they're trying to sit there and outsmart other teams which is the way that you have to do it if you really want to get in amongst it I don't think that Chelsea could buy their like buy their way to a position like this, but when I see Tottenham with the likes of a Timo Werner or a Brennan Johnson, that's when I kind of think, yeah, this is interesting. And then it just seemed to me like for a team that is in Tottenham's position, taking the opportunity to sign a James Madison, who now appears to be I know he's he's been out for a little bit, but you know, you imagine when he comes back into this team, he is the linchpin of everything that Tottenham do. And there's a guy you can jump on his back and ride the wave um, because he's got that level of quality. And again, a guy who I'm like, I'm not entirely sure how old um, James Madison is, but um, I imagine that he's um, young enough, like in terms of like maybe 26, 27, right? So, like, the, imagine the amount of Premier League appearances that that guy has between his time with Norwich and his time with, um, geez, um, Leicester, so, obviously. <laughs> I, my brain malfunctions for a sec. But you, my point ultimately is, if you're buying, spending big money on Premier League players, I feel like you should really be buy. You shouldn't be buying potential from the Premier League. If it's potential in the Premier League, it's going to cost you money and it's too risky. If you are buying players in the Premier League, buy established known quantities. Um, but, well, that's not always true. Like, as so long as there's support system. Yeah, it's the, it's the, the Alex Ferguson rule, right? <laughs> no, but it's like, like Arsenal's built on back and Saka at a certain stage and like this kind of thing, right? So I, I, I suppose, though, uh, the ultimate question is like, what? Is there a way out of this? And is that another change of manager? Because it is starting to look like, no matter who it is, you know, this kind of does need to be a a project manager to an extent, you know, a, a youth but coach I do know, kind of vibe. I do know someone who's free. I do know someone well, who's free who's neither of those things. Well, we'll step into that in a second. But, like, is it a case of simply just sacking Pochettino at the end of the year and trying again? Or do you actually double down and see what he can do 
with another summer with more time, like maybe you don't buy a rake of new players, maybe you buy one or two key like Premier League proven guys, as you're saying, a steady Eddie, steady the ship. And you kind of go into the season with that, look, we're looking up, not down. We want to try and improve after last year, but we can't just keep the churn. Um, we need to trust Caicedo and Enzo to come good and this kind of thing. Uh, maybe buy a, a maybe a, buy Ollie Watkins from Aston Villa or something with a heap of money. You know, a, a proven Premier League quantity of a striker, as opposed or Ivan Tony even. You know, as opposed to trying to buy Nicholas Jackson for the cheap because he's got potential and then seeing that he well he can't actually finish. So, like, what, what do you, what do you reckon? I, you obviously have a mind or a name on your mind. That was just a last ditch. Um, the just the Nicholas Jackson thing was just a last ditch weird one that just seemed like a should we call this guy sort of thing. Like he just he doesn't seem like a Chelsea player to me at all. Like I don't understand that at one bit. Sorry, actually one thing is Lukaku still technically a Chelsea player? Like he's on loan at Roma, isn't he? I believe so. Um, okay, like is there crazier things to do than bring him in under Pochettino and actually give that another go? like see the thing is I I just think Chelsea like there's something more symptomatic there and it it's sort of a personality issue um for me and I wonder if bringing in like a 30 something year old Romelu Lukaku into the dressing room like does I feel like he wants to be in teams that are competing and winning um really being there at the top of the league and actually muscling with the with the big boys, I just don't see a reality where Romelu Lukaku wants to come and help dig Chelsea out of 13th. You know what I mean? Um, but with the manager situation, for me, the manager situation is actually quite interesting. Because I wonder, is it possible that they go back to the tried and true they go back to Jose Mourinho. Because that's what I feel like they'll do. I feel like... Well, I, it's kind of just... It's, it kind of feel like feels to me like it's setting up that way. Um, you know, as much as he had his stint at Man United and he had his stint at Tottenham, you know, I feel like those things are relatively forgotten, ultimately. And overall... I just th- I just think the stage is set. Um at the end of the day, I think the stage is set and I think he will just saunter into that um that press conference room, light it up and that's the way that things will go. <laughs> um so yeah, for me, I just see them going with the funny reality of Jose Mourinho coming back to Chelsea. That's just what I see them doing. I think it's, you know, it's anyone will tell you history repeats itself. It's not, it's not a smart thing to do, but I think that that's the way they'll go because they need to inspire some sort of intrigue and interest back in the club, fire up Stamford Bridge a little bit, fire up these players a little bit. Um, it'll probably last tops a year, but you know, I just see that being maybe the thing that they do. What do you reckon? Yeah, well, like, I don't know if that's a, a progressive step forward. Like, 
there's no worse I'm way. I'm not saying to, it's uh, smart. I never said it was smart. I said I think it's what they can, will you do. You cannot inflict Jose Mourinho upon, upon this squad. And anyway, Jose's next move is into international management. He's going to win the Euros with. Everyone keeps group. saying that. You, you forget who this man is. You no, think, but like, come on, if he he's gets set, that call, he's, if he gets that call, yeah, yeah. he's gone. Yeah, if he, yeah. yeah. But he they gets won't that make that call. Surely, like, they're not that thick. We they're just spent the, Sean. We just spent the, the last. Serbi. We spent the last twenty minutes talking about how thick they are. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> true. <laughs> I don't think they're beyond but, it. But they're not that thick. Come on, they can't. Are be. they not? Are they not? Look, Lukaku and Jose back at at Chelsea next year is what is what I'd love to see. What's Etienne at? I know he's got a podcast now. <laughs> Has he? Or no. Oh, John Obi McHale's got a podcast. Sorry. Um, it's not Michael Etienne. It's one of his other boys. John Obi McHale. Um, but yeah. Is Roberto Di Matteo available to come back in as a caretaker? Oof. Win the Champions uh, League all out of nowhere. I don't know. Is it really interesting for Mourinho to be at uh, to be at Chelsea if he can't have a few pops of Wenger? I'm sure he'll still find a way. Um, but yeah, ah, oh, come on! Like you're you're telling me he has a chance to insert himself into all this nonsense that's going on. He loves it, he loves it, and he'd he'd jump at the chance. Um, like hell, he might even take it as interim, just for the shits and giggles. Like I wouldn't. Would you? All right, so hear me out. Pochettino sacked in three weeks' time. They call Mourinho and say interim to the end of the season. Does he take it? I think he does. Well, if they give him a shit ton of money, of course he is. Yeah, well, they they will give they give they're giving everyone a shit ton of money. Well, like, so, look, come on, we there never has a manager been so fueled by spite. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't question whether or not. <laughs> I think he'd be well up for it. But look, the, the, I, by all accounts, they're going to let him see it the season, Pochettino, and reevaluate. So maybe he can turn this around. Um, well, we shall see. But um, it's a funny one. Like, we'll see. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Like Conor Gallagher will probably go to. You know, Tottenham for a pittance and then light it up uh, in in the summer or something. So I am uh, curious to you see. Say light, you say light it up, Spurs. Um, but well, Spurs are lighting it up this year in some senses. You know, they're the pot with pot and ball is the darling of the Premier League. It's a warm glow. I'd hardly say lighting it up. It's a warm glow. That's been a very that's a it's a warm glow. That's a that's been a dark room for a very very long time. Um, took me a while to get that out. It wasn't really fluid. <laughs> as uh, as knocking Spurs go, I'm usually a lot more with it, you know what I mean? But speaking of um, knocking people, there's one sort of person that I don't want to knock, and that's the guy that we talked about last week, and that's Unai Emery and Aston Villa. Like we've sort of mentioned, you know, I, th- I feel like on this podcast and, and in general as, as fans, you spend your... You spend up until Christmas talking about, ah, it's too early, it's too early, it's too early. Then a couple of weeks after Christmas, oh my God, it's February. Oh my God, everything's getting real. And Aston Villa find themselves big win at the weekend and still there in and amongst it. Like, fair play. You have to give them credit where credit's due. I don't know, Owen. <laughs> Sorry. I know, I know they're only five points off the lead. What I would say... Is I don't really see Villa in this title challenge. If that, I'm, I'm not even sure that's what you're saying, but no, I mean just like, the the fact that like if if I just told you to start of the season, it's going to be Arsenal, Liverpool, City, um, and then Villa. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you would like in February. This is what I'm. This is what I'm getting at. Is it's February now? 
and they find themselves one result off of Arsenal and Man City. Like, that is impressive. And it, it's not about being in a title race. It's more so keeping the pace of, of where they are and the fact that in a few weeks' time, they could easily be staring down the barrel of a Champions League place. And even if not, a Europa League place would be a stellar achievement for them in terms of where they like from where they were under Gerard to where they are now under Emery. I think it's incredibly impressive. Well, especially given that they haven't really done like a massive recruitment drive. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes, they've signed players. They've they signed Diaby for a fair chunk of change. You know, they got in uh, Tielemans. Was that a free though? I think it was. Like, you know, can you think of a marquee signing that's been made under Emery Bar Diaby? Do you know what I mean? And even at that, Leon Bailey's kind of challenging him for his position. So, like, all credit has to go to the manager and how he has brought this team up a level. He's taken the component parts. He brought in, like, Alex Moreno, I think, as a kind of one of the few that would have been probably a preferred signing for him. And he's just brought the team up a level. And, like, when they have an issue, you know, Maddie Cash isn't really fit in the system. You put Esri Kozla in and, you know, he finds solutions all the time. And, like, they are set up in such a way that, Ollie Watkins can miss a couple of sitters in a game and still come out with, you know, being one of the top scorers in the league. And, you know, they they had that period where they were, however many games, winning at home. They beat Arsenal and City in the space of a short period of time. I think in the space of three to five days or something. Like, you know, they're out on their feet in some instances in those games, but they still got the results. So, like, all credit to them. I wonder, though, like... <laughs> Their form, like, to be honest, it is somewhat based on the fact that they lost to United when they were at a really weird low ebb. Like, I don't know if they, that was just a weird Christmas result. And now that they're back into a more regular, you know, Sunday, Thursday, Sunday schedule between the Conference League and their regular thing, sitting, how they'll do. And they could slap United on the weekend coming. But I am thoroughly impressed with them. You know, it's an ambitious club. It's a big club their fans must be absolutely chuffed and I actually think that the view is to be gone for Champions League here because given you know United, Newcastle and Chelsea are off it there's an opportunity there to take it and as well we have to remember fifth place could be enough for Champions League this time around given the new UEFA formats so like it could be down to them and Spurs for the, for the fourth place but even fifth could be enough for both of them and I don't really know what else to say in them. They're just thoroughly impressive. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's still something agricultural about them in terms of, like, John McGinn uh, and some of the players and, like, Emmy Martin as a sort of old-school shithouse goalkeeper. But I think they're doing incredibly well and it's hard to take anything away from them. Like, I wonder, will they put together another run of form like they did before Christmas and put themselves in a higher position? Although... They have had some of those weird losses to Newcastle as well to contend with. Do you know what I mean? Like, I oh, yeah, I think they'll like, for lack of a better word, for lack of a better term, you mentioned it there. I think they'll have a like Spurs esque season. You know the kind of the kind of season that we say is a good season for Spurs. I think they'll have one of those. Um, and I think best case scenario for them, and I mean this, I mean this in a really good way. They could finish the season with European silverware and a Champions League place. I mean, come on. That's a hell of a finish. Obviously, there's still a long way to go and it's a big ask, but they've got the coach for it. They've got the talent for it. I can easily see them 
taking the conference like the conference league do they have much trouble and then in the premier league they look like they're on course to really battle for that and like you said fifth place could be enough so imagine you're a villa fan going into next year you've got a piece of silverware for the first time in a very long time and also you're in the champions league super that's if uh your shout of unai emery going to barcelona doesn't happen of course well like that does that can still occur obviously because like in the summer of course uh, yeah yeah, because he's not leaving till the summer um and if emery does achieve all of what we just said like yeah leg it let's let's be real (laughs) can barca afford afford much more than that you know yeah Um, but leg it (laughs) do you mean leg it just go out on top run uno yeah but Um, like to be honest villa should probably win the conference league like given their form this year and mm-hmm. the way that competition is structured, like the Premier League teams have a severe advantage in terms of the money they can spend on squads compared to the, a lot of the teams they face in the Conference League. It's a bit of a different story in the Europa League, where you know you have teams drop off down from the Champions League, and you know you have some good teams from Europe and they're like Bayer Leverkusen and the like, who who will bloody a few noses and might challenge it. Like you know, that's also the story that could happen there in terms of Xavi Alonso yeah. winning the Europa League over Liverpool and then heading there in the summer. Who knows? But yeah, back to Villa. Like, I don't know. From one to eleven, they're a good team. They they have they have in another sense. You know, we talk about strength and depth, but it's also important. I think when we talk about strength and depth, it's not just about having two world class elevens. It's it's also like having sufficient players who, if subbed on, the level of the team doesn't drop. So if you take Villa, like, you know, Bailey has stepped up his game. So when he comes in for Diaby, you know, there's no real difference in terms of quality of the team overall. You've got Jacob Ramsey who can take a slot from Tielemans or McGinn. Um, like Douglas Luiz is probably the diamond in that team who, to me, is maybe more of a... Like he could be one that could be poached by by a pretty big team and um, moving you towards can see the how, stellar I mean, season. Arsenal tried to snatch him last January. Can you see why? Exactly. And like, it wouldn't shock me if, like, you know, he's from the City Academy, so you can kind of see where that's come from. Um, but like, you know, even with that camera comes in and maybe isn't quite as good at progressing the ball, but he'll sit in front of the defence and protect. And like, Luis also is freed up to go forward then. So like, you know, and Carlos, Pau Torres, Conza, is Callum Chambers still there? I don't think he is, is he? Anyway, like, they, they have a, a lot of players in, in good positions. So like, the, the, the level doesn't drop. The only one is probably Ollie Watkins. Like, they don't have... Although, weirdly, their second-choice striker, Duran, was being scouted by Chelsea as a last-minute attempt at a striker, which seems strange. Seems like Chelsea didn't buy anyone these days. Let's not go back days. to Chelsea. Yeah, it seems like they buy anyone these days. But, like, there, there's no... If they have a few injuries, there's no big drop in the level, I would say. And that's yeah. a real strength of recruitment. Mm-hmm. And also, I think it's the strength of Emery in terms of his system suits multiple different types of players so 100%. all power to them well except for sunday obviously but uh yeah yeah. yeah 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 yeah. i mean let's see let's see man uh i'm excited you know arsenal arsenal have a bit of an avenging job to do against west ham um obviously that's a big game the united game um yeah some some pretty big games um coming up this weekend so i'm really interested to see how they get everyone gets on um thankfully as well we're almost back to european football time too so that'll be really fun when that comes around um but yeah ultimately sorry what weekend... are you talking about no I won't what's huh? european football <laughs> yeah i was uh, i was supposed to be like what do you mean um but yeah of course this weekend you know arsenal west ham aston villa against man united i think tottenham brighton's an interesting game too as well 
But uh, yeah, look, I mean, man, we're match day twenty four thirty eight. Is we're getting there. We are getting there big time. But listen, let's go and uh, unwind from talking about Chelsea because they've actually fried my brain. They hurt my feelings and my brain. So I'm going to go and go to sleep. Um, <laughs> but until then, Shawnee, my friend, I'll see you out there. I'll see you out there.